The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Revelations 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Lysia write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margaret. Well, many of you know, um, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, uh, we have been looking at what's called the seven churches. And I've quoted my, one of my favorite Southern writers, Flannery O'Connor, <clears throat> one of her short stories uh, that really fits beautifully with what we're looking at today is called Revelation. I don't know if you've read it before or know what it's about. It's about a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin, in this particular scene, it's a short story. She's uh, sitting in the doctor's office waiting for her appointment. And you get to hear her conversation, both with herself and those around her. She is a, a woman who finds herself very superior to those around her and using uh, her, um, her uh, humble brag, so to speak, Uh, to put herself in a position of superiority. And Mrs. Turpin often, as is said, uh, feels tremendous degree of self-satisfaction regarding her own position in the world, as she describes it. She owns a uh, pig farm, ironically enough. Flannery O'Connor's putting that in there. Uh, And not only does she own a home, but a pig farm, she finds that even owning more than a home, she finds herself more superior than other people. Well, she's sitting in there and she says things like um, that uh, she's what to do with people who have a lot of money but who are common. I feel sorry for those people. They may not know what to do to spend it on things. I spend my money perfectly. But she says this as well. If it's one thing I am, I'm grateful when I think of all who I could have been besides myself and what I got. I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. Oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Well, another person in that waiting room, 
has a daughter named Mary Grace, hence the name Mary Grace. And Mary Grace has had enough listening to the humble brags of Mrs. Turpin, all of a sudden takes a book and throws it as hard as she can and hits Miss Turpin in the eye, the eye being connected to what we're reading today even. And as it hits her in the eye, Miss Turpin finds these hands clasped around her neck and wringing her neck on the ground saying to her, screaming at her, screaming at her, and, and yelling at her, go back to the hell you came from, you old warthog. And then this young girl who, whose eyes are aflame, it describes, and whose words are piercing her, rolls off, begins to have an epileptic seizure and falls over off of her. And her mother trying to console her and Miss Turpin standing over the mother saying, what, how dare you do this to me? finds herself leaving the doctor's office and the words begin to penetrate her, her ears. And she begins to see the words of Mary Grace, eyes of fire, revealing in revelation of how self-deceived she really is. In fact, she begins to pray things later like, how? How, God? How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? How am I the same person? How am I somebody who is so wonderful to me? And yet this girl just spoke to me in this way about how horrible I am and what I deserve. How is that? It's a great passage on self-deception. It's a great understanding of thinking that we are all good and okay and yet we are not at all. Hence the name of the whole short story, Revelation. That is what's going on at this church. The church of Laodicea was a church that was essentially in need of nothing. And we read passages like this, and this is actually what I've used from Flannery O'Connor when people asked her, why do you write the way you do? Why write a short story like that? Why write these things? She says, because for the hard of hearing you shout, and for the blind, you draw large, startling figures. If you want an illustration of what, how to read Revelation, that is it. It is theology in pictures. It's to get under us. It's to try and tell us about how we're missing it, how we're, we're failing, but we need Jesus. And to see our need in ways that we don't see before because we need our imagination to be pulled out. It's not just a word. We need us to see pictures of theology. We need large, startling images to shake us from our apathy. And that is what is wrong with Laodicea. I'll tell you, last week we looked at a, a church in Sardis, and this week we're looking at who had a, a desire to make a name for themselves. This week we're looking at Laodicea who has no need of anything. And yet Jesus says, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do they know that? Am I saved in me too? One of the things we need to see is that this church, like Miss Turpin, was one who had such a deep need and yet couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. And if there's, an, if there's a description of a city, and you'll see more of this, like Laodicea, I would think Nashville is very close to it. It was an incredible city. 
all luxuries and things being built into it, being brought into it. It was the place to be. So much about it. Banking centers, medical communities. You hear this language of eyes and salve. It was a, it was a huge medical community that people would travel for miles to go to. It was a place who even had covered walkways in the ancient times to protect from weather. Cities didn't have that in the Roman Empire. It was a place where people were going to make it. And it's interesting here because there are three very simple things that Jesus tries to get us to understand is that you don't know your need. Do we know our need? And he tries to get this church to get to know their need through three things. Knowing, buying, and knocking. Knowing, buying, and knocking. He begins here by saying in verse 15, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so you be, because you're lukewarm I, and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, here's the thing about Laodicea. They were so wealthy that when an earthquake hit them, this devastating earthquake in the early centuries, it, it, it rocked many cities. You even talked about some other cities in the seven churches that were laid to rubble. The one city that denied aid from the Roman government was Laodicea. They had so much money and banking in their city, they said, we got this, don't worry about it, help other people. Can you imagine when Hurricane Harvey came through and leveled Puerto Rico, amongst other things, it, it, it rocked the city of Houston. But you know, you always heard about Puerto Rico and all the aid and you could see pictures of, of, the, of the city itself. Can you imagine Puerto Rico, instead of saying, oh, we, we got this, we can, we can rebuild. We're all right, we got enough money. I mean, think about that, building from that much devastation up and not needing help at all from anyone. That's a lot of money. And they didn't just build, they, they built gymnasiums. They rebuilt coliseums. They rebuilt it heated, not just covered walkways, heated walkways for the winter. These people understood how to make a city. It was beautiful. It was nice. And yet, they were as poor as dirt because they didn't really know their need. Look, we've talked about this before, but, and I mention this at from time to time, but it's easy for us to look at need and think that we have stuff together. We are, we are, we are a city, we're a culture, in, so to speak, where even coming to confession is really hard to do because it's hard for us to express a need because we have our needs met. And here's the thing, we confuse our needs of existence with our existential needs. Our needs to have water, food, money, things that we can go out, we can leave here, and like I said, we can go buy whatever we want. I mean, I was driving the other day with the kids to go get <clears throat> Chick-fil-A, and the Chick-fil-A was closed. And I was like, wait, 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 you can't close a Chick-fil-A. Like this rocket, like you could see people pulling up like me and going, like gripping the steering wheel and kind of looking over it. 
Like, wait, where am I going to get my chicken? Like, I need Chick-fil-A sauce, you know, like you, you, but then what do they do? They just go, okay, five guys, mm, you know, just pull over here. You just turn. We're used to having our needs met and we have what we need to meet those. But the problem is, is we're so used to meeting our own needs through the needs of existence, those things like food, water, shelter. Maslow, who, who was the great psychologist, let, you know, listed out those needs. Those just everyday things. We confuse those with our real existential need, our deepest needs. The needs that we have to be attached to other people, to have love and care and community intimacy. Isn't this why when we're having a bad day or we're really struggling with attachment that we go and find the food, comfort food that we need? Or we do retail therapy. We pursue things that would be normal needs to try and meet a deeper need, right? This is where the city of Laodicea is. This is where we tend to move. And this is why it can be hard for us to come into walls, especially even in a church. This isn't in the city. This is also in the church where they were coming through the doors to worship and they were looking around and nobody seemed to have a need at all. Oh, worship's great. I don't have to really invest in anybody. Everybody seems to be fine. Everybody's needs are met. And there's this interesting part at the beginning in verse 15 of when it says, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? You know, this, this, so uh, it says, so because you are lukewarm, so many years, I think many of us even in this room think, well, hot or cold, either be on fire for me or, you know, you need to really just be chilled out for me. But just don't be in the middle. Actually, that's not what this passage was talking about. Six miles to the north of Laodicea was a place called Hierapolis. It was a place that had hot springs that were not only good for baths and, and good things, they were actually medicinal springs. And 10 miles to the east was Colossae, another city that had refreshing cool springs, natural, that you could just go and drink from. And see, here was the thing about Laodicea. They had everything, but they had to pipe in their water. They had to pipe in the hot springs six miles away and they had to pipe in the cool springs from 10 miles away. And often by the time the water got there, it was so tepid and disgusting that it was undrinkable. In fact, quotes from even that time period said, turbid, remember back even Tur Mrs. Turpin, turbid water, white with mud, and it was caused nausea and undrinkable. So they would cause nausea and even vomiting. This is why Jesus is saying, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. It's not, I want you to be on fire for me or chill for me. Those are both good. I don't want you to do this nominal thing because you think you have everything, but you're nausea. You cause nausea by the way that you live. And isn't it interesting, think about this, isn't it interesting to encounter someone who refreshingly, when you meet somebody who actually shares their need, not just a, I need this, I need that, but actually gives you something to meet them with their deeper need of longing. Some of you, I've even talked to you about this. I even mentioned this. I said, gosh, it's so hard for me to receive this. And some of you are like, let us do this for you. And it wasn't about bringing a meal and it wasn't about, you know, 
watching a, a, a kid. It was more about your soul needs to be met and refreshed. And isn't there something so refreshing, so medicinal, when someone actually lets you meet them in that need and then you are met there? Here's the question, simple question. Do you see your own need? Have you used every need of existence to wall yourself off from needing anything else? Have you gotten so good at covering your own need that you don't let anybody even in? I think it's fascinating that that they have all this stuff for you say I'm rich, I've prospered and need nothing and yet you don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Are you self-deceived? Do, do people encounter you and when you really have a need, do you put a wall up quickly? Or is the goal for you, here's the real question, is the goal for you to not, to not need at all? And I would say, and I wanna challenge you and me, because I've, I just confess to you, I've said this to a couple of you in here, and a couple of you in here have pressed me on it too, that we would not be a church. And if you're visiting this morning, or if you're even coming in to hear what Christianity is about, we are saying that Jesus meets your every need. It doesn't mean you don't sit and you make it lunch, or you go eat. He's saying he's meeting your deepest needs. There's something about this that draws you to himself. Are we a people, are we a church that is saying, I'm okay, thank you, I'm good. If we're doing that, what are we showing about Jesus? What are we showing about the one who becomes pitiable, poor, and naked for us? What are we worshiping? Are we worshiping a savior who came to show you didn't need, need at all? Why did Jesus come in the flesh? He came because our needs are twisted. He came because sin, that, that way, you know what I'm talking about, the way that you need something is insatiable. That's how you know your sin is attached to it. When it never satisfies you. And sin is a way of, we're talking about, your needs are broken and twisted. This is why we go to things that should be good things to fill a normal need that were before the fall of man when God just created. And yet we're supposed to experience those and we don't because sin is entered in an insatiable. Or we try and kill them. We feed them with other things. Like C.S. Lewis said, need love is where we say we cannot do, live without blank. And we need what he says to cry out in our poverty. We need to admit to God and others that we are poor. That we are poor and pitiable and blind and wretched. And it is, I will be the first to tell you, it is so hard to do that. Even coming out of my family background, which is a whole other story and I'm sure yours too, there are aspects of the way we grow up and we're taught, you need, to, you need to not need this and you need to need this. 
Some of us grow up and we don't even understand need because we're codependent. Codependency means you don't know your need from everybody else's. And Jesus is trying to say, we need to learn our, our poverty and need in him. To make sense of all your needs, you have to go to the source of it. And this is why he says, for I counsel you, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me. This, this, this phrase of buying is so interesting to me. I, I, we even sing a song about it. <clears throat> um, come ye sinners, right? Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We sing a hymn about it. Come and buy. What does it mean to buy from Jesus? That's kind of a weird thing because especially for 21st century Americans, it would be easy for us to think about that in a, mer- in a merit-based culture. What it means for us to, to buy from him. He's counseling them to buy. Is he counseling them to earn it? To get in there and do it? That you need to earn this with me because you don't know your poor? That's the question. Is your relationship with others and Jesus in such a no-need position that you kind of live life in, a, in, a, in an arena of not even knowing where your needs are. But sometimes when people ask you, what do you need? And you just say, I, I don't even know. To buy from Jesus, he's addressing the confusion of our needs. He's addressing the real need. Look, there was an article in the in New York Times I thought was really interesting about this. And it was called this, the struggle to define what we truly need. And it went a little bit financial, but I think overall it was moving into this existential, this bigger needs that we have. Listen to what he said. About a year after my wife and I had our first child, we moved into a neighborhood with homes built decades earlier. Each had two or three bedrooms. We soon noticed that when people had a third or fourth child, they moved from the neighborhood in search of more space. And one day I mentioned this to my next door neighbor who was 70 at the time and he expressed surprise. He and his wife raised their five kids in one of the smallest homes on the block. One of the most challenging personal uh, finance issues we will all face is the ever-expanding definition of need. Things we once considered clear luxuries have somehow become necessities often without any consideration of how they changed in status. Cars that seemed just fine now seem old-fashioned. Now cell phones, you know, always the need for the new thing. And there was even a drawing on a napkin in this, it looked like almost drawn out for somebody who had sat with a friend. And it said on this, in this spiral, these quotes would start here and say, oh, that's nice. And then I want that. I need that. I must have that. And then it says, repeat until happy. Isn't that the case? And right next to repeat that till happy is this huge question mark. Aren't we trying to repeat over and over once needs get happy? When it says to buy from Jesus, it says a couple things completely opposite of the pursuit of those other needs. It says this, and I love what, listen to this. This is what the, um, a commentator put this language on it. And I thought, this is beautiful. Sure possession 
with complete dependence. That there's a sure possession that meets complete dependence. And those things are counterintuitive for when we talk about come and buy. Hey, come and buy this and you'll be set. Buy this and you'll be, I mean, it'll be, it'll make your life. But Jesus is saying, look, you buy this, you have sure possession of it and complete dependence. What is sure possession? Sure possession means that when Jesus says come by, it means you're not on a layaway program. There's not a debt counter that you keep paying into and then one day you get, you get grace. You get Jesus. You get heaven. That, that's your program. That is not, he's saying sure possession means it's yours. To buy from Jesus means, okay, you can come to him for all sorts of things, but what you're going to get is a thing that you can't pay for and you can't possess. Most things we think about, and just like in that article in the New York Times, you buy and you have to buy again. I mean, even when you finish those payments off on your house, your car, whatever it is you have, you're constantly thinking about, well, at the end of this, I can hold on to it. I'm going to run it into the ground or I'm going to keep putting money in it. But it's what? Dilapidating. It's falling apart. You're looking for the next thing you need to keep it going. Jesus is saying, sure possession. There's nothing out there. It's in hand. Why is it that we look at Jesus with our need as we keep having to put quarters, put a payment plan down to earn the grace that he's giving us. It is yours. This is the difference in the the way that your need is met in him than anything else. It's sure possession. It is in your hands. It is yours and it is not leaving. It is not being taken away. It won't be depleted. It won't lose its, its luster. It won't fall apart. It is yours. And not because you have merit and not because your grip is so strong, but because it is yours in him. Because of what? It meets complete dependence. See, that's where we, we forget. Yeah, I need to be completely dependent on him for that possession. Completely put it in. It means that there's a cost. It means to buy from him, there is a cost. But what he's saying to you, the sure possession, the reason you get it is because you're dependent on his payment and not yours. This may sound very basic to some of you. And this may be a a category blown for others. But I encourage you, especially if this is something you've heard before, or you're like, maybe he pays for my sin. Does, do you realize that? Do you live day to day moving your heart back to make sense of all the other needs because you're going to leave here and you're going to have to pay bills. You're going to have to find lunch. You're going to have to go meet other need requirements. But do we go back to the source of our need? Because here's where Jesus meets it. He meets it in what he counsels them to buy from him. And I love what, what, have you ever read this book called Wounded Heart? It's a great book about our need He says this, the price of soul freedom is the loss of what has been deemed most secure, 
the tight grip over one's soul, the commitment to be one's sole provider, protector, but it is intuitively known as no security at all. Penance is a payback. Repentance is a plea for mercy. Many of us live in the world of penance, trying to pay God back for what he's given us. But total dependence means that we are leaning on his mercy alone, a plea for that. And he says three things here to tell us what it is. And, and, and I want you to recognize these. When he says, I counsel you to buy from me first gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. <clears throat> Laodicea was such a wealthy banking community. It was said even Cicero, the philosopher himself, banked there. They were used to banking. But what he says, I'm gonna give you the greatest precious metal refined by fire. Why is he trying to say this? He's trying to say to them that there's a purity and unmixing in the wealth that I give you. Some of the, think, think about the most basic thing Jesus is trying to say. He's not trying to be all cool and complicated. He's trying to say, you think you can buy yourself out of anything. You think that the number in that account, if it's above a certain point, makes you feel comfortable. It's not going to hit the comfort you really need. The only way to understand that, the only way to know where your sure footing is, is to know how poor you really are. Is to know what you really need from him. To buy gold refined by fire means that, this, this, that you need to understand how wealth chokes out your need and understanding that he gives you something that's pure, refined. He takes out all the impurities of it. Jesus is the only one that doesn't provide wealth for you that's mixed. Your value is in him, not in the account that you can create. He has made it for you. It draws, ask yourself the question, what does money, success draw out for you? What does it create in you? Does money actually if you have it in hand or something of that nature, does it, does it consume your mind? Whether it's a retirement plan, whether it's something in the fact of, man, I, we're just living hand to mouth. I mean, so many of us don't even wanna talk, it's, it's one of those taboo topics, right? None of us wanna talk about. No one has come in my office really and said, I'm really, I'm really start struggling with greed. I've never had anybody come talk to me about greed ever. Why is that? Because it's always a moving target. Because the idea of making ourselves someone with that money is a moving target. We, it, who we live around, where we go to eat, what we wear. We want to put ourselves in a category and not, no one ever really knows where our heart is. You can't see greed as easily. It's not as easy to see, it's easy to hide. But do we know that there's a wealth in Jesus that is beyond that, that frees you from the shackles of that account with your actual money, your actual things? He even says after that, he says that you may clothe yourself uh, and white garments that you may, so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And where is that coming from? One of the things that you may not realize is Laodicea was one of the greatest textiles uh, um, cities. They put out this incredible black glossy wool 
the greatest in Asia Minor. And people would come in all the time. It would be exported out. People would come and have it. You could clothe yourself and look absolutely stunning in this black glossy wool. It was kind of the, the, the beautiful cloth of the day. This is a very basic need that he's saying. What are you using to cover your shame? That is not, it's not a rocket science question. Every single person in this room encounters shame on so many levels. Whether it's the way that you look, whether it's the, the, the stage in life you feel like you should be in, maybe you're reminded of what you're not all the time and you are wanting to cover yourself in any way you can. There is a reality where Jesus says, I I'm here to cover you with white garments, meaning pure, so that your nakedness might not be seen. Because the reality is we're all trying to cover ourselves frantically. I would love to continue trying to cover myself with anything that I can to make myself better. But you know what? When we face the grief or the difficulty of what we really need, see what Jesus is doing? He's not letting you off the hook. He's not saying to this church, "Mm, it's okay to need those things. He's saying, I'm gonna give you the deepest need to help you understand what it's like to have money, to deal with your shame, the deep need of shame that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the whole Bible when they needed to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And what does God do even in the very beginning of the Bible? Even when sin enters the picture and destroys them and they're already in their shame, who covers them? God does. Even God covers them, even after they've disobeyed him. He gives them garments of animal skin. Takes away their leaves and says, I'm gonna even clothe you with this very basic need to show you the true need of my love. And he even finishes by saying, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was known for their great ophthalmology school. They were a great healthcare system. Not only did people go there for banking, not only did people go there for the, the fashion, they went there for the medical community. They had a salve that could actually heal the eyes. And Jesus is saying to them, look, and I have salve to anoint your eyes so that you may really see. You notice he uses three basic needs to talk about the deepest need that you and I have, the deepest, most powerful needs that we have, of value, of our shame, and needing to be known and loved in it. And even discernment and wisdom, being able to see the salve, to see, not be blind, but to see the reality of who we are and how we're loved. Jesus says, come to me and buy. And he could have ended it there. He could have ended this passage and said, okay, that's enough. You You get it? But you know how he ends it? He ends it by saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This knocking is another one of those things I think for years. It is easy to read and go, oh, Jesus is so sweet. He comes and knocks on the door and lets me in. I'm gonna let him in and we can dine together. If you read Revelation chapter one, that is anything but the person who is knocking at the door. Remember Flannery O'Connor's story, The Eyes of Mary Grace? She gets that from Revelation chapter one when there's this picture of Jesus with these flaming eyes, the sword out of his mouth, this power that he has. There's anything but someone weak at the door. And it, it actually is taken from a book that we don't usually read called Song of Solomon. There's a very intimate encounter of a husband and wife. And there's a passage, this is taken from that, where the husband goes to the door and knocks and says, honey, I'm here. This husband could knock the door down with an easy kick. And yet he also doesn't leave the door. He knocks and says, let me in. This isn't an evangelistic thing necessarily. This isn't saying, oh, you can come. This isn't like a friendly. It's saying, renew your relationship with me. I am the true husband. I'm not just a stranger coming by. I'm the one that is yours, sure possession. And yet you must open the door to let me in. This table is that. He is knocking. Come to this table. This table reminds you that every taste you have of the wine, juice, bread, crackers is that you need, right? But it's pointing to the deeper need of the one who stands and knocks. So let's stand here now. And together, both in your bulletin and the screen behind me, Let's read what our Savior is calling us to. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Please be seated. If you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I follow Jesus. Come to this table recognizing the one who knocks is renewing his, you to see your need for him taste and see that this is a taste of a larger meal, a larger need that hits you deeply. And if you're here this morning, you might not know him, and you hear him knocking, would you come to faith in him? Don't come forward, take this, you know, this meal. Don't taste this out of just because everybody else is doing it. That wouldn't really meet your need. It would only meet a surface need to feel like you're doing what everybody else should be doing. Ask the question of the deeper need of who Jesus really is. And come forward, fold your hands, receive prayer, talk to me after, grab one of us, grab me, grab Bing, grab somebody, and talk about who's the one knocking. It's not just a friendly stranger, it's the husband who is all-powerful. Let's bow our heads and go to him in confession.
and prepare our hearts to come to this table. Let's bow our heads.